When I was growing up, I one, sometimes would read comic books. Not very often, but every once in a while I would get a comic book. I don't remember a whole lot about them, but one of the things I do remember are the advertisements in the back. If you're old enough, you remember in the back there were these advertisements, one for like for sea monkeys. There were ones for these little plastic soldiers you could write away for, maybe a World War II set or a Revolutionary War set. But the other one had this little story, these little cartoons that start off. And it starts off with this guy sitting on the beach. And he's sitting there with his, his girlfriend and a big old guy runs by and kicks sand in his face. And he gets up and he says, hey, don't do that. You kick sand in my face. And the big guy comes back and he's like, I'd hit you, but you'd blow away. And so then the, the guy goes home and the next frame shows him standing there in front of a mirror. And he's like, oh, I'm so skinny. I'm so small. I don't know what I'm ever going to do. But then he finds an advertisement for Charles Atlas Bodybuilding. And he mails away and he gets this. And then a few frames later, you see him on the beach and he's huge. And he's punching the bully in the face. And all the girls are hanging on his arm. And he's the big hero. And you could get the Charles Atlas program for just mail a dime in this little thing away. And you'd get this little book. And I was thinking about that today. Not because we're going to do bodybuilding. Not because, <laughs> not because we need to beat up people on the beach. In fact, that's the exact opposite of what Jesus teaches. But I think there's an interesting thing that happens because it's this story that's so often used in advertising, the before and the after. And the Charles Atlas was unique because it kind of told a story. A lot of times now we just see a picture of a before and an after. But there's so much this idea of there was something we once were. And so in this cartoon, it was this, you were once this skinny little guy. And now you're this big person. Once you were the person who was picked on and now you don't need to be picked on anymore. And I was thinking about that because as we're reading through the book of Ephesians, this study we're doing, a lot of what Paul does in the letter to the Ephesians is exactly that. It's a before and an after. Once you were one way and now you're something else. And so last week we read the beginning of a chapter two. And it kind of sets it on this cosmic level that once you were dead in your trespasses and sin... Once you were caught up in that, there was this predicament we were in, but then God intervenes and makes us alive in Christ and we become new and transformed. So it goes from predicament to intervention to new creation where we're no longer walking in sins, but we're walking in good deeds. That our identity has been changed from death to resurrection. And he does the same thing in this section. It's almost this parallel section. But now he's again talking, but he's talking now from being outsiders to part of one new humanity. And so he starts off and he says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the uncircumcision or by those who call themselves the circumcision. And so we're going to come back to what the significance of that is. But there's this sense that they were something different, that Israel's one of the markers for them was circumcision. There was a sense of being set apart. But one of the things that it starts off with is simply you were once one way. And now you're something different. And sometimes for me personally, when I look back and think about maybe the way I once was and the ways I've changed, I don't like remembering that. I don't remember like remembering the way I once was sometimes because I wasn't always a good person. The way I picked on people in high school, the way I cut people down and, and I've changed in that in many ways. And so I don't want to remember that. But here Paul's remembering because he's wanting us to see that transition but he's in part saying that once you were part of one group, the uncircumcised, and you were called that by the circumcision, 
And even if you have no idea what he's talking about, you get the sense that there are labels put on groups. There's this group and there's that group, which sometimes happens today, doesn't it? Where we have labels, we have groups we put people into. It's been a long time since I was in high school, but I know when I was in high school, there were the groups. There were the jocks, and there were the geeks, and there were the drama kids, and there were all these, and there were all these different groups of people. And you use the labels, not simply to define which group you were in, but sometimes to say who was in and who was out. And so even if you don't know what Paul is talking about, you begin to get the idea that, oh, you weren't that. In other words, one group, the group who called themselves the circumcised, has labeled you something. You're the uncircumcised. You're the outsiders. And so it's getting the way in which it's doing. And then he goes on, he says, if you have missed that, he says, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise. Again, even if you don't get all the details of it, does anyone even want to be excluded or separate or foreigners? I mean, it's one of the worst feelings, isn't it? When we go somewhere, we, we want to be included. When we show up somewhere and, and we don't know people and we're left sitting off on the side. When we go with a group of people and they decide to go off and do one thing and leave us by ourselves. When we're sitting at church and we sit down at a table and everybody else goes and sits at another table and we have coffee all by ourselves. Or we sit in a pew and we feel like no one's sitting next to us or no one's talking to us. And so here's this picture. He's talking to these people and he's saying, this is what you were. You were excluded. You were outside. You were foreigners. So that's the before picture. But then he says what? He says, but now. That was the former. You were this, but now. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood. And so this language of far away, brought near. Again, we don't have to have a huge biblical knowledge, a big idea of what he's talking about to realize like, if I'm far away and I'm brought near, that's a good thing. And it's really, it's temple language. It's this language of, being far away from the temple and being brought near. And he says, what? By the blood of Christ. In other words, by his death. And so he's being, you're far, you're brought near. And he goes on, he says, for he himself is our peace. In other words, he's reminding us, Jesus is at the center. The peace doesn't come from anywhere else, but he himself, Jesus himself, not ideas about Jesus, not thoughts about Jesus, not our attendance at church, not our giving, none of those things. But what brings that peace? What brings that reconciliation? Jesus himself. He himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. Like I said, there's a lot going on, a lot that's loaded in here. Now it gets even more confusing. So he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside his, in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. You think, what's he talking about? What's this barrier? We've gotten the picture that people are far away and now they're brought near, but what was standing in the way? And so, in order to figure that, we need to step back just a minute and remember the big story of the Bible. So, the big story of the Bible is God's people, that God has created a good world and people have rebelled. And so, God's plan, His rescue plan, His plan to restore creation, restore people back, is to choose a family. Denise talked about part of that family, Jacob and Esau. 
So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this family. And through this family, God would bless the world. And so this was the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And they were to be a blessing to the world. But God said, in order to do that, you can't live like everybody around you. You need to be distinct. And so God gave to them the law, the Torah, these instructions of how they're to live. Some of us remember the Ten Commandments, at least, this, this picture of God's on the mountain. He gives them, and there's actually quite a few more commands, and they have to do with the food you eat and the way you dress and all kinds of things. And they served a couple of purposes. Many of those were simply to distinguish them from the outsiders, or just, even outsiders, not the right thing, to distinguish them from the rest of the world, to say, we are different, we are unique. There were moral commands also, which set them apart and said, we don't behave like everyone else. But the purpose of those was always so that they could be a witness and say, this is what God is calling us to. The purpose of them was not given. The law wasn't given to earn God's approval. That was not the way. God didn't say, oh, here's these laws, Israel. Here's these rules. If you can follow all of these, then I will love you. Because we sometimes think of the Old Testament as like, well, that was law, and now we live in grace. God gave them these laws after he'd already rescued them out of Egypt. And he gives it to them to say, this is what it looks like to be my people. Sounds a lot like what we talked about last week, where God raises them and says, you were created to do good deeds. And so God rescues them out of Egypt and says, now I want you to live a certain way so that the world can see what it looks like to live and follow me. The law also exposed the need for a rescuer. Because part of what the law does, part of the rules, what it does is it reminds us is we can't keep it. Israel failed to keep it. The nations failed to keep it. And so there's a section, sense of what it is. But it was set, it was given to them in some sense as this protective hedge around them. And so there's a, a tension in the laws. They were supposed to have interactions with the world around them. They were supposed to share who God was. They were supposed to have the nation see what is, but they weren't supposed to be influenced by the world. And the laws were supposed to help them do that. At least that's what they were given for. The problem was that the Jewish people, as sometimes we do, is when you're given something special, when somebody says, oh, you're special and you're set apart, sometimes people have a tendency to begin to think a little more highly of themselves. If you're sitting in the classroom and the teacher points out and says, oh, you need to be more like Bob over here. Well, Bob might start to get a big head. He might start to think, I'm not picking on Bob back there. So <laughs> it was just the name that came to my mind. So, but there's this sense of where it can begin this distinction. And so the law for the people of Israel it was meant to maintain distinction and not prove superiority, but that's the way they began to do it. And so now if you're the Jews and you've begun to see this law as like, we're special, we're chosen by God. What is it in the, the Gentiles? And so the world that divided, there's the Jews, the people chosen by God, the seed of Abraham, the descendant, the physical descendants of Abraham. That's the Jews. Gentiles just means everybody else. And so the people of God, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, they began to see themselves as special and specially chosen by God. And so they began to look down on the Gentiles around them. 
They begin to have this sense of superiority. Ironically, they really weren't any better. They didn't behave any differently, but they felt like God picked us, so we must be special. That's the human condition. It wasn't something that was like, oh, this wasn't just like, oh, well, that's because of, you know, God chose the wrong people or, you know, it wasn't something inherently wrong with the Jews. It's like, no matter who he chose, that's the way nature of things work. And so the Jews are looking down. Well, and so the Gentiles now, they're not real happy with it because they're being looked down upon. And so when Paul's talking about this barrier, this dividing wall of hostility, what's happened? There's hostility now between the Jews and the Gentiles. Between the Jews and the Gentiles, there's this hostility going on. And the barrier, what's the barrier? The law. These commands because the Jews have them and they think we're superior to you. And the Gentiles are like, no, you're not. You're not any better than us. And so this wall of hostility has come between them. And so what does it say Jesus does? He breaks down that barrier. He says he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh, in other words, in his body when he dies, he sets aside the law with its commands and regulations. Now, does that mean we can do whatever we want now? No, that's not what he's getting at. Instead, what he's getting at is the idea that the way the law was used to separate people is no longer there. But instead, what does it say he does? He says, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. In other words, instead of there being this group and that group, the wall comes down and there's just simply one. There's a new humanity, a new creation. And again, that's that same language Paul has been using throughout, that what God does is make a new creation. In other words, we no longer use the Torah to make outsiders. The division which they had been doing in the flesh has been destroyed in Jesus' flesh. So God intervenes, and He doesn't make the Gentiles into Jews. He makes a new humanity, and He creates this one new group. There's this reversal, and you hear it. He says, He came and preached, peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Remember how He started off? He says, at one time you were foreigners and strangers. Now you're not. So God takes the old, and He's creating something new. And what has happened is he's, we're seeing once again how God overcomes the way we tend to warp and pervert the good world that we live in. And it's one of those things is divisions. We set up divisions in the world. And so one of the ways as we think about, we think, okay, well, that was a long time ago. We, we don't have that same sort of division now. But do we have divisions in our world sometimes still today? Are there walls of hostility that are put up? Yes. And what Paul is inviting us to do is to live into that. And in some sense, what he's saying, one of my professors from seminary did a class with him on Ephesians, talked about this. He said, if that barrier, then all barriers. You know, that we have no right. And it's not that we need to tear the walls down. The walls have come down. We just need to live in that reality. And in some sense, what's happened is Jesus has brought the wall down, and we're maybe like, this is a great, uh, uh, the dogs have those little electronic fences, right? And they, like, you set up the electronic fence, and the dog learns that it can't pass anything. But I know I've talked to some people with dogs, they say, sometimes the fence goes out, but the dogs don't realize that. 
And so they've been what? They've been trained. And so they behave as if there's still a fence or a wall there. In some sense, that's what's going on here is Paul saying the walls have come down. The walls don't exist. But we sometimes still behave as if they do. Sometimes we do build barriers. But Paul is saying, if this barrier has come down, then all walls are going down. And we're invited, he says, by the Holy Spirit to live into this new identity. And so I was thinking about what, what might this mean for us today? And one of the ways I was thinking about it was the way, the sense in which we're called to live much like God's people, or but much like the Israelites. That was what we got it last week, was God calls us to be different. God calls the church to be holy and separate. In fact, that's the rest of the book of Ephesians is spelling this out, what it looks like to live. And the purpose of that is to demonstrate to the world what following God looks like. Now, can you think of any parallels between Israel and the church sometimes? So Israel is given the law to set themselves apart. They're supposed to interact with the people around them, but they're supposed to demonstrate holiness to the people. But they begin to get a sense of superiority. They begin to look down on the Gentiles. The church is given a code to live by. We're called to be holy, called to be different from the world around. But it's a good thing we're not like Israel. It's a good thing in the church we don't look down on the people around us. It's a good thing in the church we don't have a sense of superiority and that we're better than everyone else, right? Maybe. But maybe sometimes it happens. I know certainly it wouldn't happen here, right? <laughs> that we would never look down on other people and think, oh, well, look at the way that person lives their life. And sometimes we do it unintentionally. Even the language that we lose, language that we use. Um, remember how there was this uncircumcised and the circumcised and there was these divisions. And, and we use language and we, sometimes we talk about the lost which is biblical language, right? But then there's the lost and there's, there's the found. And sometimes that can begin to create a sense of, well, I must be special. God found me. He didn't find you yet. <laughs> there can be the sense of looking and saying, oh, can you believe that group of people? And sometimes we use labels, don't we? The liberal institutions, the media, the secular humanists, whatever. We, we draw all sorts of labels, and what do we do? We, we create up barriers, and we create hostility, don't we? Let you know a little secret. Church isn't popular with a lot of people. There's a lot of people who think the church is filled with hypocrites and hateful, awful people. Where did they get that idea? Because we have set up this barrier of hostility. We can tend to look down, and we can point out all the things wrong with them and begin to miss the things that are wrong with us. And so when Paul says he's torn down the wall of hostility, we begin to think about how do we interact with the world around us? How do we begin to see them and to welcome them and live into this and say, yes, they're different. 
They may not do all the same things that we do. They may see things differently. But how do we begin to love them? And so as I read this passage, I think one of the calls to us, church, is to begin to think about how do we love people? How do we begin to not build those walls? Or if there are laws, walls of hostility to find out why they exist. Now, Paul doesn't describe what that looks like here, but it's something we've talked about before here is one of the best ways is just to listen to people. So it's been a while, but when you have a conversation with someone, we've talked about here at Fruitland Covenant Church, three magic words that help when having a conversation. Does anybody remember what those three magic words are? Tell me more. Tell me more. In other words, if you encounter someone, and chances are you will encounter someone who has hostility towards the church. Our temptation sometimes is to say, no, 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 really, the church is a great people, or, you know, that's just human beings, that's just Jesus, that's, you know, but not at my church. But one thing you might just say is, well, tell me more. Find out what, what's behind the story. Where does that hostility come from? And then when they begin to pour it out to you and tell you all the things about all the reasons and how they were hurt by the church or something, and you're thinking in your head, oh, that's stupid, that would never do. You know what you say? Tell me more. And you just listen. Now, there might be more conversations after that. But if we are going to begin to tear down those, not live and erect more walls, we need to begin to say and listen and be willing to say, we can't allow ourselves to build walls of hostility. We can't allow these walls of hostility because they exist. But they come down in Jesus. Jesus himself is our peace. And so ultimately, part of it is, we don't, people, we don't point people towards the church. We point people to Jesus. And it's hard to separate those two because... People encounter Jesus, how? Mostly through the church. But always remember that we're pointing people to Jesus. And so that's one application I would think about us to think about from this passage is how can we live and not continue to erect walls of hostility between us and the rest of the world? Again, see how simply that language, there's not a good way. Every time we do it, we, we create, and there's some sense we're, we're creating these differences. And there are differences, aren't there? I mean, in some sense, we have been raised from death to new life. We are no longer far, but now we're near. And they're not, but, but to not use those privileges, not to use those blessings, not to use the ways God has called us as a way to stand over people, but a way to serve other people. Jesus, in one of Paul's other letters, just describes Jesus in this way. He says, he did not take his privilege, and, and privilege is one of those words that kind of triggers people nowadays, right? But privilege, privilege isn't good or bad, but the difference is how it's used. Jesus had privilege. If there was anybody ever privileged in the world, it was Jesus. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, in the second chapter, he says, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Being God is a pretty privileged position. He says, but he did not use that to his own advantage, but instead used it for the sake of others. And so what we need to think of is we have been privileged to be called and brought out of darkness into the light, out of 
death and trespasses and sins into new life. And how do we use that privilege? Do we use it to look down on others or do we use it to serve and to communicate, and to share that good news of Jesus and say, I have been found. God has welcomed me. God has brought me out of darkness and into the light. God has brought me from death to new life. Come on and join me in this. And so the other way, that's one way we set up divisions, and it's much the same. And sometimes those barriers are not between the church and the rest of the world, but sometimes the barriers simply become within the church. It's over something like politics, usually politics. Maybe it's about socioeconomic, something about, but allow those barriers and how we do that. How do we make sure we're not setting up barriers and divisions? How do we avoid the sense of people like us. You know, we use that language. Well, we're, we're just looking, you know, well, you might fit in at my church. What, is that, what does that even mean? Everyone should fit in. There, there's a sense of people like us. And sometimes there is even that sense. When I was studying in seminary in the 90s, there was this principle that um, Robert Gavron talked about, you know, this homogeneous um, unit principle. And the idea was like, you build churches by finding other people like you. And so some churches would set up and they say, oh, here's the person kind of person we're trying to reach, or here's the kind of people we are. And that's how churches sometimes exist, isn't it? We end up with a whole bunch of people that are like us. Maybe they're like us in terms of socioeconomic status. Maybe they're in like us in terms of educational status. Maybe they're like us in terms of ethnic background or racial background. Maybe they're like us in terms of all these things. And we tend to divide up. We say, well, this is our... And so Paul's saying, we need to stop that. Instead, he says, in him, the whole building is joined together. In other words, all the people of God are brought together in one temple. So Jesus has torn down the barriers, has torn down the walls, and so he is inviting us to live into that. To live and recognize that the walls of hostility have been brought down and not to live dividing the world up into groups, but to live as one. And finally, we remember not only that God has torn down that barrier between Jew and Gentile, between us and others, but ultimately, he's also reconciled us to him. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says, in other words, he says, he had said at one point, he says, you were without hope and without God in the world. You were separated, but he says, now you have been brought near. He said in one body to reconcile both of them, this is verse 16, in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the Christ. So not only does he reconcile the two groups, but then he reconciles all to God. And so we celebrate that too, that we have been reconciled to God. We took no initiative, but instead God does that in him. And so as we prepare for communion, we remember both those things. We come and we take communion and we take and we share in communion and we realize that the barriers between People have been destroyed, but we also recognize that the barriers between us and God have been destroyed in Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate that reconciliation, that the, the break in the relationship has been healed. And so what God has done is taking those of us who were divided and united us in worship. 
And so may we celebrate this day the way that God in Jesus Christ has torn down the barriers, broken down the barriers between people and let us live in peace together, but also He has broken down the barrier between us and God. And so may we live at peace with God. Amen.